verses 14 through 29 of Mark chapter 9. Last week, uh, we covered the, the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter and James and John have just come down from this spiritual uh, high, this massive high where Jesus is transfigured in front of them. They have a glimpse of glory in this very rare view of Jesus. They are able to witness a conversation between Jesus and uh, Elijah and Moses. And you will, you will remember that Peter is so overwhelmed and, and Peter is hardly ever without words, but he doesn't really know what to say. And so he simply says, it's good that we're here. And it was good that they were there, but then he comes up with a terrible idea, and that is that they would build three tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Remember, Peter, he is kind of determined that Jesus is not going to go through this crucifixion thing, and so he sees this as another opportunity to go right into the segue, right into the eternal kingdom. And the Bible tells us that while they are there, that a cloud hovers over them, and God the Father speaks from heaven himself. Jesus doesn't answer, but God the Father speaks, and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You see, the plan of God, as we mentioned last night, was not for them to stay on the mountain of transfiguration. They must come down because there is still work for them to do in the valley. In fact, as we will see today, while they're up on the mountain, there's a lot still going on down in the valley. And they must come down from the Mount of Transfiguration mainly because Jesus did not come for the Mount of Transfiguration. He came to go to a mount where he would be crucified for the sins of the world. We didn't really cover this last week very much. And maybe perhaps you thought, well, he just kind of skipped over verses 9 through 13 and it wasn't purposeful. But I do want to go back today and just give you a little bit of clarity on it because it is kind of some, some obscure verses. So look back before we get into our text today at uh, verse number 9 of Mark chapter 9. We do not have service this, af- this evening. There is a nursing home service this afternoon at 2 o'clock, uh, but we do not have an evening service. You say, what does that mean? It just means we get longer in here this morning and you don't have to come back tonight. So uh, how many of you are looking, to a over- looking forward to an overtime sermon this morning? All right, three of you. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, Verse number nine, look at it. It says, as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the son of man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. What, what is this? How's this all going to turn out? And they asked him saying, why say the scribes that Elijah must first come? Now, they had an understanding of the Old Testament. They had an understanding of an Old Testament prophecy that before Jesus comes to set up his kingdom, that Elijah would come back. Now, in their minds, the kingdom was, if Jesus was going to die, crucifixion, resurrection, kingdom. That's in their mind. So they say, What does it mean that the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And Jesus answered them and told them, Elijah verily cometh first and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be said at naught. Look here for just a second. He's saying there's two prophecies that I want you guys to remember. Yes, indeed, Elijah is going to come before the kingdom. But don't forget this, Peter. The Son of Man must come and suffer many things. 
The Son of Man, which is Daniel's reference to Jesus, the Son of God, he must come and be crucified. And then look at verse 13. But I say unto you that Elijah is indeed come. Hmm? And they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, and it is written of him. Go, Go back up to verse 11 and 12. Why say the scribes that Elijah must first come? You say, what are they talking about? They're talking about the prophecy that was given in Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 1. Malachi says this, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. He is giving this this prophecy of a, a prophet who will come, a forerunner who will come, not before his earthly ministry, but before his kingdom. And then in chapter 4 of Malachi, he gives us who that is. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Verse number 6, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So he's giving them, Jesus is referencing these two prophecies, the coming of Elijah before his kingdom and the coming of the Son of Man. And then verse number 13, which is a, a, a verse that may be confusing at first, he says, I say unto you that Elijah is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed as it is written of him. I want you to understand, this is not a a reference to Elijah himself, but rather a reference to John the Baptist. You say, where do you get that? Hold on. Stay with me. Luke chapter 1, verse 13. Luke chapter 1 and verse 13. But the angel said, this is before John the Baptist is born, right? His, His parents, Zacharias, Elizabeth, says the angel said unto them, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. Thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. Notice this. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, And he shall go before him in the spirit and the power of who? Elijah. In other words, he is going to be a a picture of Elijah to turn. Here's the reference again. Same wording in Malachi. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people be prepared before the Lord. And then... If you go to Matthew chapter 17, which is the parallel passage to the passage of the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, verse 12 and 13, it clarifies it for us, Matthew does, when he says, but I say unto you that Elias is come already, same uh, wording as Mark gives, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Notice verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them, not of Elijah, but of who? John the Baptist. So if you're a little bit confused, the verses 9 through 13 at the end of Mark chapter, or in the middle of Mark chapter 9, there is just a, a brief description of what he is speaking of as he is reminding the disciples of his coming and his need to go to the cross. Now, verse number 14. 
You want to stand once more, once more? Let's stand for the reading of God's word. If you're able to, verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, they were greatly amazed and running, running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit, and wheresoever he taketh him, he tears him, he foams and gnashes with his teeth, and pineth away, and I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. And he answered and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him straightway, the spirit tear him, and he, he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oftentimes it, it cast him into fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if you can't do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Say this with me, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, and he lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Father, again, would you help us this morning through your word to be conformed to the image of your son. Give us greater faith. Make us people who are more people of prayer. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who does not know you as their savior, they have never put their faith and trust in you. We pray that today would be that day. We pray all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. You may be seated. What a contrast of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration to what he walks into when he comes back down off the mountain into this valley. On the mountain, there was glory. The glory of Jesus. In the valley, he comes into suffering. On the mountain, the power of God was on display. But when they got back into the valley, the power of Satan was on display. On the mountain, there was a well-pleased father as the cloud came over and said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well-pleased. In the valley, there was a broken-hearted father whose son was demon-possessed. On the mountain, there was a perfect son in all of his glory, Jesus himself, but in the valley there was a possessed son in torment. On the mountain there was heavenly glory, but in the, the valley there was demonic terror. It is from one great contrast to the other. And then as we come to verse 23 and verse 24, I think that we see the key to this section. Jesus says to this man something that we need to get into our hearts and minds as his believers today. All things are possible to him that believes. And then the response of that statement from this father in verse 24 
Just an honest reply. I believe, but it's mixed with doubt. I believe, but I'm human. You know my doubts. I mean, he's been like this from a child. I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus is beginning now over the next few chapters, he is beginning to teach the disciples a series of lessons. He was teaching them then and 2,000 years later, as we are also without the visible presence of Jesus, he is still teaching us these lessons. He's going to teach them a lesson on humility. He's going to teach them a lesson on offenses, a a lesson on the seriousness of sin and, and marriage and divorce and the place of children in the kingdom and earthly riches and where does true wisdom come from and true wealth and what does real spiritual leadership and sacrificial service look like and we're going to be looking at those things over the next few weeks but he begins his teaching and he ends his teaching with a lesson on faith today a lesson on faith in prayer As he gets ready to physically leave the disciples when he is crucified and risen and ascended back into heaven. Remember, this is all preparation, getting them ready for the great commission that he has called them to do. And what we see in our text today is that as he leaves, that they're going to need more faith in God and less faith in themselves. He reminds us how important is strong faith. How important is strong faith in our life? Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's how important it is. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, speaking of spiritually, he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. Faith is the substance, the writer of Hebrews says, the substance of things hoped for or anticipated in eternity. And it is the evidence of things that we can't see. Which means this morning we gather together, we love, we worship, and we serve one that we cannot visibly see with our human eyes. We do so by faith, but it is not blind faith. What is our faith based on? It is based on evidence. And the evidence for our faith, what anchors our faith this morning, is the Word of God. Our faith is anchored in the word of God. It is a sure word. It tells us all that we need to know. There is no other book that even slightly compares to the accuracy and the authenticity of God's word. Its fulfilled prophecies are are mind-boggling, but nonetheless, we still live by faith. And for two plus years, the disciples have been walking by sight. They have watched Jesus. They have watched the miracles. They have seen him. They have heard his teaching. Every miracle they have witnessed with their own eyes. As he cast out demons, they, they saw that. As he raised the dead, they were there. They lived by sight. But soon, he is going to be taken out of their physical presence presence and they are going to need to live by faith they're going to need strong faith they would always have the memory of what they had seen but they would soon not see him visibly here is our question this morning how strong is our faith how strong is your faith how often do we doubt and in unbelief Again, Jesus says in verse 23, all things are possible for him who believes. I want you to walk through three scenes with me this morning, just right through the text. And the first one is covered in verses 14 through 19, where Jesus sorrows 
or laments over the lack of faith. In verse 14, Jesus comes down from the glory of the mountain and he immediately enters a controversy in the valley. The scribes have found the nine remaining disciples. Remember, three of them are on the mountain with Jesus. They found the nine without Jesus and they see them as a perfect target and a perfect opportunity. And it appears by the text that the disciples are losing the argument. And as Jesus enters the scene where the disciples are being attacked by these religious leaders of that day, Jesus comes to the defense of his disciples, even in their failure. And let me just stop here and say, Jesus is our defender. How many of you are thankful that he comes to our defense? Even in our frailty, even in our failure, he comes to our defense. He is our defender. And in our text here, he comes to the defense of the disciples. He also comes to the defense of the desperate father and a demon-possessed son. And Jesus asked the scribes in verse number 16, what are you questioning them about? And no one answers. So finally, the father of the demon-possessed boy speaks up in verse number 18 as a sad indictment on the faith of the disciples. The dad says, in essence, since I brought my son to you and you were not here, I brought him to your disciples who you had given authority to cast out demons. Remember just a a few chapters later, chapter 6, he had given them authority to go without his visible presence and to be able to do these miracles, and and they were not. In fact, I would encourage you maybe to mark those four words in your Bible, and they could not. They could not. And they were not able to do so. And I am afraid, church, listen, I'm afraid that that is a sad commentary of many churches and Christians today. They could not. It wasn't for lack of finances and it wasn't for lack of people and resources, but they could not because they did not have the power of God on their life. Perhaps like the disciples, they had become very self-dependent and and self-reliant. And what we need, let me just say this morning, that we can have the greatest music, we can have the best programs, we can have all the people, we can have a great budget, but if we do not have the power of God in our preaching and in our witness and in our services, then we will fail. We need the power of God. They could not. They did not have what they needed to do this miracle. And Jesus says in verse 19, speaking to them and their generation, oh, faithless generation, and he reminds them, how long am I going to be with you? I'm not going to be with you forever. How long shall I suffer for you? And then he says, bring him unto me. And and this is a a reprimand of, of the ones who had been his students over the last several years. It's kind of like what he said earlier, oh, ye of little faith. He reminds them by his questions that he will not always be visibly with them. And listen, before we are too critical of these nine disciples this morning, before we start trying to pick the little splinter out of their eyes, let us look in the mirror and look at the log in our own eyes. Because we are much like them. Trying to do the same things in our own power, Brother Dave. 
trying to overcome that temptation that has been beating us for years and still failing doing it in our own power. We're still ashamed to speak courageously after all this time as his students. We're we're still tipping him a very small percentage of the resources that he has entrusted to us. We are still not willing to use our talents for his kingdom. And though Jesus is lamenting over the lack of faith of his disciples, aren't you thankful that he doesn't give up on them? That he keeps teaching them. That he keeps showing them. And listen, this is a powerful reminder in this story that there is only one ultimate source of help and hope and healing, and that is Jesus Christ. You'll not find that in a man. Don't put your hope in a man. I can promise you this, if you're around here long enough, more than a week, I'll let you down. I'll disappoint you. I won't be there when you need me to be there. I'm going to fail you, but that is why we point you to one who will never fail you. And that is Jesus Christ. He is a patient teacher and he is an all-powerful healer. We see, first of all, that Jesus sorrows over the lack of, of faith. And I believe if we could see today into the heart of, of God that there would be that lamenting over the lack of faith in some of our lives. Secondly, the second scene here in verses 20 through 27 is that Jesus strengthens the lack of faith. He mourns over it, but then he strengthens it. He begins, he continues to teach them. And he is going to teach them another another lesson on strengthening our faith. And there's several people in the story that need their faith strengthened. The disciples for one, but also this father and son. And he begins strengthening their faith. First of all, Notice, how does he strengthen their faith? First of all, by showing compassion to the desperate father. He turns his attention to this father. When the demon sees or hears of Jesus, the Bible says that he attacks the young boy. This is a a bold demon. Instead of laying low, he attacks in Jesus' very presence. And notice that Jesus ignores the demon. He turns his attention to the Father and makes sure of this. Jesus is never intimidated by a demon, no matter how powerful it is. And demons are real. The spiritual warfare is real. But you and I do not have to live in fear of them because the Bible tells us this. Greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. And if we have the Spirit of God living inside of us, we need not fear them either. either. This is a reminder to us today that that chronic problems do not hinder divine authority. Listen, Jesus isn't asking this father these questions because he doesn't know. He already knows how long this boy has had this problem. Say, well, he just really... Needed to know before he could do this miracle. He just really needed. No, Jesus was God. He knew. What's he doing? Showing compassion on this father. Letting his father do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says. Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. He's showing him attention. He's showing him he loves him. He's also reminding him because he's about to do a miracle. How long this boy's been enslaved by Satan. All those watching how long this boy has been enslaved by this demon. 
And the compassion of Jesus is requested by the Father. Look at verse 22. Oftentimes, he says, it, it cast him into fire and into waters. Whenever we would be near fire or whenever we would be in water, this demon would try to destroy him by casting him into the fire and into the water. And then he says at the end, if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us. Have compassion on us and help us. Now listen, if you miss everything else I say this morning, I want want you to make sure you get this. This reminder, this story is a reminder of John 10, 9 and 10. Let me remind you what Jesus said in, in John 10, 9 and 10. He says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. But in contrast to that, let me remind you that the thief cometh, speaking of the enemy, Satan, he comes but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. His desire is to, is to steal and to kill and to destroy our children still today. He wants their minds. He wants their hearts. He wants their lives. He wants to destroy them. But Jesus has come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. He says, if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us. Now, that's a pretty weak statement of faith, isn't it? If you can do anything. In fact, it's, it's in contrast to what we saw in Mark chapter 1 where the lepers said, I know that you can, but will you? In our text today, he he believes Jesus has compassion. He believes he would if he could. But he says, are you able to? Do you have the power to? And verse 23 records Jesus' straightforward response. If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. In other words, he turns it back on the Father. The question is not, can Jesus heal? The question is, can we believe? The question today, church, is not, is it possible for him to save you? The question is, will you believe? He is possible. All things are possible to him who believes. And Jesus is teaching here how to access his power when he leaves. When he is not visibly with them, how do we access his power? And I love the raw response of this this father. Filled this statement, if we could go into the, the Greek meaning of it, it is filled with a lot, a lot of emotion. And he says... I believe, but help my unbelief. I do believe in you. I do believe in your power, but I have doubts, and I admit it. And if we were all truthful in here this morning, we all could say, I identify with that father. I believe. But in my humanness, there is doubts. The Lord never expects perfect faith, though he is worthy of it. 
He only expects imperfect faith because that's all he's ever going to get out of imperfect human beings. All of us are going to believe with a a measure of doubt mixed in. But listen, as we grow in him, our faith should increase and our doubt should decrease. And in verse 25, this father's faith and the disciples' faith will be forever strengthened as Jesus casts this demon out of his son and commands him to never come back again. And I love verse 27. Jesus took him by the hand and he raised him up and he stood up. Luke adds this, Jesus gave him back to his father. What's Jesus doing? He's strengthening their lack of faith. What is the level of our faith this morning? Let me ask you, are you positioning yourselves in places where your faith can be strengthened? Are you spending time in the word of God? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you gathering with the the body of Christ so that your faith will be strengthened? Jesus strengthens the lack of faith. And then lastly, we see that Jesus schools or teaches regarding the lack of faith. And this is so very important. He brings it all to a climax here. And he takes his disciples aside into a house for a a private tutoring lesson on faith and prayer. And the disciples begin to inquire Why couldn't we cast out this demon? I mean, what's the difference? And Jesus answered them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Listen, church, prayer is the highway that faith takes into the power of God. He has given us prayer as the greatest tool, the greatest way of of us communicating to God, and yet it is one of the most neglected things in our life. The missing ingredient then from chapter 6 to chapter 9 is prayer and fasting and dependence upon God. Maybe because they had some success on that little, that little mission trip, that little tour that they took without him, that they felt comfortable that they could do this now in their own power. They, they had learned how to do this in their own strength, in their own wisdom. And perhaps that's us this morning. Especially those of us who've been saved for a good number of years. Listen, if we're not careful, we begin to think we can do it on our own. Uh, We used to depend greatly upon God for our business. We used to pray, God, would you bless us? Without you, I can't do that. But now we think we we can handle this on our own. Or or that class that we teach or that, that song that we're singing, man, we used to get up and we would be nervous and we would be praying and we would be fasting. But after years, we got this. We got this. We can do this on our own. How about parenting? Do you remember the first time you held that little baby in your hand and the weight of that responsibility overwhelmed you to the place where you said, God, I need you. But after three, four, five, six, seven, or eight of them, (laughs) you got this now. You got this. That's exactly what the enemy wants us to believe. 
He does not, listen, he does not fear us doing things in our own strength. He fears a Christian on his knees in dependent prayer upon God. Because that is where our strength comes from. What we used to spend much time praying about, fasting over, skipping meals, we no longer do. Well, that's all that Mark says, but we should be thankful for what Matthew adds because it's such a powerful piece. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 17. You say, just how much faith in my prayer do I need to access God's power? I mean, how much faith do I really need to build up here before I can start seeing the power of God? This isn't a lesson, I don't believe, primarily on how to cast out demons or how to do miracles or how to raise dead people. I think Jesus is teaching his disciples a very important lesson on how to access the power of God on behalf of the things that God wills to do. Certainly salvation is one of them and sanctification is another But this is what Jesus wants the disciples to understand. And it's what he wants you and I to understand. That we can't ever approach kingdom ministry from a human standpoint from the strength of men. We need the strength of God. We need the power of God. How much faith do we need? Same text, different writer. Matthew chapter 7, parallel passage, gives us the information. Chapter 17, verse number 20. For verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. Jesus is simply saying this, that life is full of insurmountable things. And you and I will never have the power in and of ourselves to alter those things. But if you have the faith of the size of a grain of mustard seed, the smallest seed that was used in agriculture in Israel, a tiny, tiny seed, all it takes is the faith of a grain of a mustard seed and a dependence on God to do that which we cannot do. Look, that's why Jesus said this. If you will have the faith of a child, that's what you need for salvation. The simple faith of a child. You say, I don't understand it all. There's even some doubt mixed in my heart. Well, here's all you need to do. Jesus, I don't understand it all. But I'm putting my faith today in your death and in your resurrection. And I want you to grow my faith. I want you to help me. But here's where I'm going to start. Just the faith of a child. Just the the faith of the size of a, a grain of mustard seed. And you know who the model of that kind of faith was? This father right here in our story. This is the same story. Matthew chapter 17. Who's he talking about when he's talking about the faith of a grain of a mustard seed. He's talking about this father who said, I believe, but help thou my unbelief. 
Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe, but my faith is mixed with doubts. I want more faith. And guess what? That was sufficient faith. It was sufficient faith. Did Jesus respond to that faith, yes or no? He did. Jesus responds to mustard seed-like faith. And Jesus shows these men that, that a new believer, these disciples who he had been training for two years, he shows them that a new believer who hadn't been with Jesus at all, who had a very beginning faith, if, if he exercised that faith, if he had enough faith to just believe that he could, that it would bring down the power of God. That's a hard lesson to learn from a disciple who has been following him for several years. And he's telling his disciples, if you'll be like this stranger who's never walked with me or talked with me before, if we have the faith of a grain of a mustard seed and you take that faith on the highway of prayer into the power of God, you will see God do mighty things. In his grace and mercy, Jesus could have let his disciples succeed without prayer, fasting, dependence. He could have let them succeed thinking that they could do it on their own. He could have let them succeed thinking that prayer wasn't really necessary. But what's Jesus doing? He's preparing them for his departure. He's preparing them that they need to lean into him, depend on him in prayer. And we're learning here how a very small amount of struggling faith can draw us into God dependently. God, I believe, help my unbelief. All things are possible for the one that believes and acts on that belief through prayer and fasting. Listen, let me ask you this morning. Has there ever been a time in your life where you have simply put your faith in Jesus Christ? I'm not asking if you have all the answers, have it all figured out. But has there been a time in your life where in simple childlike faith, you say, I am, my faith is not in my works. My faith is not in religion. My faith is in Jesus's death and resurrection. I don't understand it all, but I'm, I'm, I'm exercising childlike faith in that. If not, I want to ask you today to just simply recognize your sinfulness and pray this prayer. Lord, I do believe in your death and resurrection. And help me to grow in my unbelief. And be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe with all my heart, the Bible teaches that if we will do that with a repentant heart, a, a turning from our faith in any others to our faith in him, that according to the word of God, he will save us with that childlike faith. And Christian, let me ask you today, how strong is your faith? And may I suggest that it is as strong as our prayer life is. What are the things that you've become very self-reliant, self-confident in? I can do this without God. Oh, you would never say that with your lips, but what about your life? Say, what do you mean? Do you pray about it like you used to? Because if you pray about it, that means you're not dependent upon you. If you don't pray about it, it means you're very dependent on, on you. 
You've got this. Here's the lesson to the disciples. Why couldn't we do this? This kind comes not but by prayer and fasting. 